The reading is taken from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. To the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I, give, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to look at this, uh, the first of the seven letters of Jesus to uh, those seven churches scattered around the western, uh, sort of midwest of, um, of uh, current Turkey. Let's pray as we start. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, Heavenly Father, as we gather here as your church in this part of your world, we pray simply this, that you would give us such ears, that we would hear what the Spirit wants to say to us, individually, also corporately together, as we have need, through these words. And give us such ears that we hear so as to obey so as to live in the light of what you are saying to us this evening. And we pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, I've been reading um, Tim Keller's great little book, um, The Prodigal God, uh, recently. Um, and uh, Tim Keller, if you don't know me, is a pastor in America, has written a great little book, uh, many books. Uh, Prodigal God is the one I've been reading. It's, it's an extended um, sort of reflection on the parable of the two sons, if you remember it. And in particular, it's, an, it's a reflection on what it means to be saved by grace. What that actually, what it really means to be those who are saved by grace. It's an excellent book, short, and I commend it. And one of the key points that Keller observes from the reaction of the dutiful, obedient older brother, who, if you remember, from Jesus' parable, refuses to join his father in celebrating the return of the prodigal younger son. One of the uh, observations that Keller makes is that obedience is no guarantee of love. Obedience is no guarantee of love. Indeed, as he goes on to sort of observe, really, obedience can hide a cold and a distant heart, just as surely as disobedience can display such a heart. 
And he makes a very challenging point that it is Christians who rightly place a high view on obedience who are, of course, potentially prone to this creeping coldness. It struck me as I was reading these words, Christ's words to his people in Ephesus sound exactly that warning to us, don't they? Exactly that warning. Obedience is no guarantee of love. If you'd visited the church in Ephesus, as you'll see from those first uh, three verses, thank you, um, it would have looked like a flagship church. If you'd been passing through, it would have looked a model church. They were, uh, they were active. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. They were moral. Uh, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, Jesus says. They're not compromising with the immoral culture around them. They're brave, verse 3. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. They're discerning. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Flagship church. It would would be in any good church guide on your coffee table. And yet, verse 1, as Jesus is walking amongst them with, do you remember from the the vision of Jesus in chapter 1, with eyes that are able to pierce through the superficial to the very heart, as Jesus walks amongst them, he's alarmed. Because what he is seeing, beyond what is happening externally, what he is seeing are hearts that are growing cold. And verse 4 is the key verse. He says this, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. It seems that in the process of enduring hardship, they are becoming hard. They're forsaking love. The problem is not so much with what they're doing. The problem is why they're doing it. They're forsaking love. Love is no longer the ground out of which their life flows. Now the question is, what have they stopped loving or or who have they stopped loving Um, I'm not sure it's it's altogether clear but it seems to me as I I thought about this when we're we're enduring and being obedient several loves I think potentially come under threat I think the loves for Christ the love for each other and the love for the lost can all come under threat as we go on in the Christian life So firstly, uh, our love for Christ. I wonder if there is something about perseverance, endurance, or indeed just going on in the Christian life, which can, if not rooted in the soil of grace, lead to a Christian life that is increasingly characterized by duty and deeds, but not so much by devotion. You have all the right works, but, but not so much of worship. I wonder if life can become increasingly consumed by the daily routine and habits, maybe even survival, and just slowly, bit by bit, lose that connection with the Christ who loves us and who wants us, above all, to live in that love and to live out of that love. I wonder if that is possible. I think it is. See, the gospel of Christ is a declaration and a demonstration of divine love. it's meant to win our hearts. And if, if, 
If Christ has our hearts, then of course our lives will follow in joyful submission. The greatest commandment on which all the others are built is this, isn't it? Love the Lord your God. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything flows from that. Our acts of devotion towards the Lord are to flow from this love like fruit organically comes out of a tree. Does, uh, does a wife like receiving flowers from her husband? Well, she does as an expression of love, but they are pretty empty, meaningless tokens if they have become love's replacement or if they have become just a matter of routine. You know, it's Friday, I'm filling up at the petrol station as I always do, I get the flowers. You know, if it's just born, no one does that. I know all those things never happened. It never will. Yeah, I know they arrive on a Friday, but it's not. You know, if it's just if it's just if it just comes out of a routine, just something that has now become habitual, rather than a genuine expression of love, they have become pretty empty. And this letter, it seems to me, suggests that it is possible, while being outwardly obedient, for the heart to be growing cold, and for acts of obedience to becoming actually a substitute for love, rather than an expression of love. Indeed, I wonder even whether, like the older brother in the parable of the two sons, whether indeed they can even subconsciously become those things by which we think we are earning God's favor towards us. One can be just as lost in obedience as one is in disobedience. And Keller goes on in his book to give sort of several symptoms, really, of, of what a heart that is cooling towards Christ looks like. And I think they're helpful. I'm going to mention two or three of them. First, he says that one symptom is, is a heart that is increasingly angry with the way that God is dealing with us. Um, Keller says this, we can have the feeling that God owes us because we've lived such good lives and I've tried so hard. And then when things don't go our way, we suddenly feel a pang of anger towards the Lord. You know, that sort of sense of, come on God, look how much I'm doing for you. Look how faithful I am in difficult situations. Look how I resist such and such when so-and-so capitulates. Surely Surely I'm due X. Or I deserve why. And then when, that, when I don't get what it is I think I need, what I think I deserve because of the way I've been living, there's that sudden pang of anger. Now, friends, that's not an equation of love. Uh, that's, not an equa- that, that, that's not born of one who is joyfully and confidently entrusting one's, love to a, uh, one's life to a loving Savior, secure in his grace and his goodness and his wisdom. That's not an equation of love. That's a business transaction. Keller talks about that sense of joyless, mechanical obedience. He says that obedience in the long run for the elder brother is a grind. Again, it's a good question, isn't it? I read these verses to think, yeah, how, just stop and think for a moment about that. Is my obedience, is my service in church, is my uh, whatever it might be, is it life-taking or is it life-giving? Am I obeying with joy that flows from love, that flows from expressing gratitude and the gifts that I have been given? Is that the ground of this? Or is it all starting to feel a little bit like a chore? A little bit like, like the king. Is, is, is it the rotor that's driving me? You know, the weekly reminder of the email 
you're on duty? Is it a gritty determination that gets me to do whatever X, Y, and Z is? It can be a sign, kind of, that the heart maybe is just growing cold and it's something else that is motivating our obedience. Kurt talks about prayer. What's the sign in our prayer life that maybe the heart is growing cold? Is it relational? Or has it become increasingly transactional? Is there the praise in my prayer that there once was? Or is it now just a list of things that I'd love the Lord to respond to? Assurance. Final one. Do I have that sense that actually God is with me and he's for me? Do I have that sense that all he has is mine? Do you know what the father says to the older brother? All I had is yours. And the older brother just didn't realize it. Do we realize it? That all God has is ours. Or do I believe, even deep down, even subconsciously, that I have to prove myself to earn his acceptance? These and others are some of the danger signs. They're some of the symptoms of spiritual heart disease, of a heart that is no longer being fed by the gospel, that's no longer supremely thankful for forgiveness, no longer adores the one who died to adopt us, who has forgotten the love of its saviour, that love that first won our hearts. Is our love for Christ cooling? Secondly, is our love for one another cooling? You can see how easily, think back to the situation in Ephesus, see how easily this could happen to the church in Ephesus. Because it's rightly on its guard, isn't it, against false teachers, it seems, that there are people around, false apostles, and they're rightly discerning and discriminating. But you can see how easy that tips over, can't you? Suddenly, you, you're rightly, um, rightly your guard is up, but see how easy that becomes a sort of sense of guardedness. You know, a right desire to be discerning becomes a wrong suspicion and judgmentalism towards everyone, towards those in the church who don't agree with you about absolutely everything. Suddenly, hang on, maybe there, you know beyond the pale. Friends, I have to say, as I thought about this, perhaps uh, this, this really did strike home with me um, because I see it in me, this sort of um, this in particular, I think. You know, when I'm listening to speakers, perhaps from a different background, perhaps from a different evangelical stable than my own, and I have to say, I have felt this in my own heart. I have moved beyond a right discerning as I'm listening into that sort of ugly, sinful, loveless, testing of every phrase, listening in order to score points rather than to rejoice in the truths that I'm, that I'm hearing, uh, looking for the slips and sort of mentally jumping on uh, things that I would have put slightly differently or not emphasized quite so much or emphasized more and using it to confirm my own position rather than rejoice again in the, the truths that I'm hearing. Not really rooting for the speaker. I wonder if I'm alone in that. What might be the signs that our love between us as a church is cooling? That's what Andrews has you know, often said. We, we're a church that is fed, fed by several streams of uh, evangelicalism, and we have different views on the exact nature and style of worship and 
different emphases on certain gifts, slightly different expectations, I guess, of the way the Lord will work amongst us, divine activity. And we have the opportunity in love to engage as family on these things, not to duck these issues, but to engage with them and to discuss them in love. We have the opportunity to use these differences to enrich our corporate life and to grow as a family in maturity as different people bring their different perspectives. But I guess as love leaves the heart, so room is made for minor differences to become major divisions. Whether our light bulbs are greed enough, or our children are quiet enough, or our coffee is fair trade enough, whether our songs are fast enough, or whether they're slow enough, or whether they're loud enough, or whether they're quiet enough, or whether we sing them once, or twice, or three times, whether our neighbors in the pew are too smart, or too casual, or so easy, isn't it? We smile because we, it resonates, doesn't it? So easy for these minor divisions to, to divide when love leaves the heart. At the welcome evening last week, it was, or week before, Simon Potter, our new um, curate, was asked what had sort of attracted him to us uh, as a church in, in terms of doing his um, training with us. And he said as he was, had come to various interviews and he'd met people, he said that he was really struck by our, I think he used the language, generous evangelicalism. I think that's the word, the word he used. He certainly used the word generous. I think it was generous evangelicalism. Yeah. Which I thought was a lovely phrase and a really noble vision. Uh, you know, evangelical, we have a high view of God's word. We have a commitment to discerning its meaning. That's why we don't duck issues. We have a commitment to discerning its meaning and to living it out. But we want to do it, do we not, in a context of generosity, always with a generosity of spirit, always wanting to put the best spin on what people are saying and not the worst spin on what people are saying, always taking people at their best and not at their worst. We want to be those who major on the majors and refuse to seize on those differences of style or differences of emphases or different understandings of minor matters. We don't want to seize on those and use those to divide. We want to be generous, generous evangelicalism. It'll take wisdom. Above all, like all generosity, it'll take love. Our love for Christ can call. Our love for one another can call. Of course, very briefly, our love for the lost can call. Again, think back to Ephesus. It's obvious, isn't it? I mean, you know, if, if you're surrounded by a slightly hostile culture, what is the obvious response? It's not love, it's hostility. We'll return hostility for hostility. Now, we won't turn the other cheek, we'll turn our back. Uh, immorality and social strife that we see out there, that'll stop moving us to compassion and instead it'll move us to revulsion. It won't break our hearts, instead we'll have that sort of sense of disdain where you're getting exactly what you deserve. And our love for the lost can cool and instead of engaging as we are called to, to be salt and light in the world, not of it, but in the world, engaging with the world, salt and light, ministering the grace of Christ, we withdraw and our love for the world grows cold. What is our impulse towards the lost? What is our impulse as a church individually to our surrounding culture? The flame of love that once burned brightly and expressed itself in worship to God and warmth towards one another and witness to the world, it seems, is being slowly dampened in the church in Ephesus and is being replaced by a cold 
religious orthodoxy and practice. And for all the good they are doing, they are losing the one thing that really counts. Do you remember these words from the Apostle Paul? If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. We are the people of the God of love. And the the degree to which we forsake love is the degree to which we forsake God. And so Jesus calls on the Ephesians, on us, to repent. Repent, says Jesus to the church. Or Christ will finish what they have started, and he will remove himself from them. And the question then as we close is, how do we rekindle such love? How do we keep such love going when it is tough? Love for Christ, love for one another, love for the lost. And briefly, it seems to me that in this letter, Jesus tells us in two ways. First, by looking back to our former days. That's what he says in verse 5, isn't it? Consider, if we could have verses 5 to 7 up now, that'd be great, brother. Thank you. Consider how far you have fallen, Jesus says. Consider how far you have fallen. Often when you <clears throat> excuse me, hear or read of a long-term relationship uh, that has broken down, you discover, in fact, that it was not sort of one big event that caused the damage. Often you'll find that it was, if you like, death by a thousand cuts. Uh, people realize one morning that they have come to the end of a very slow, very gradual distancing that has been going on, perhaps unnoticed, For years, during that time of busyness and the hurly-burly and the routines of life and raising children and juggling jobs and social life and all the rest of it, then one morning, they roll over in bed and look at their spouse and they see a stranger. And like any relationship, it seems to me this can happen to our relationship with Christ. Couples that commit to counseling will often be told to remember the former days. Uh, to look back to why it was they fell in love in the first place. To remember that their experience, their present experience, is not always the experience that they have had. It's not always been as it is now. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? Consider how far from that first love you had. Consider how far you have fallen from that first love. Remember what you felt when you first heard my gospel. When you first turned to me in love. How did that first taste of forgiveness feel? How did that first experience of freedom feel? How did that, how did that first experience of being part of a global family feel? How did we read our Bibles then? In that first, those first months? How did we, how did we pray then? How did we... It was, was there more praise in our prayers? Uh, what did church mean for us then? Were we quick to come to church? Quick to serve then? Or is familiarity breeding contempt? Perhaps it is we no longer feel that we, you know, perhaps we no longer feel we need that kind of forgiveness like we first did when we first heard the gospel. 
But having been Christian for so many years, it's not quite so immediate to us now. No longer takes our breath away when we sing of the cross because we've, we've sung them for 10, 15, 20 years. When I first turned to Christ, I turned to him because he was altogether lovely in my eyes. Is he still altogether lovely in our eyes? Does he still take our breath away? Consider how far you have fallen. Consider those days and compare. He's not saying live in the past. He's not saying what I want you to do is just keep you know, live in the past. But the point is, as you look back, it enables you to answer the really important question, which is how is my relationship with Jesus today? That's the key question. How is my relationship with Jesus today? And as you look back, you're in a position to answer that. You know, spiritually, actually, it's very unhealthy to live in the past. But it's vital that we learn from it. Repent, says Jesus. That's a relational word. That's a relational word. Turn around. Turn back. Turn back to me. Do what you did at first. Give me your heart. That's the first way to rekindle love. And very briefly, secondly, the second way is to look forward. Look back, look forward. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To those who yield their hearts, to the one who yielded his life, there is the promise to eat from the tree of life. That is to say, to forever enjoy the far-reaching effects of the death of Christ in the company of the whole redeemed community, in the presence of God permanently. That is paradise. And says Jesus, it is this future of perpetual love that must fuel our battle to love in the present. We rekindle our love by looking back and by looking forward. Verse 7. Whoever, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God, give us the grace so to do. Amen.